All right, it's seven o'clock. I like to start on time if I can. I have a few announcements to share with you. And after we, we do that, we'll have a prayer for those concerned. And then we'll sing a song together and begin our study. O'Neill Parker, who's the brother-in-law of Evelyn Floyd and Martha Tyra, passed away yesterday in Memphis. He was a member at the Park Avenue Church of Christ in Memphis. And the memorial service will be for immediate family only. Erlene Henderson, member of the Burnville congregation, passed away yesterday evening, the results of COVID-19. And then her sister died this morning. On a happier note, Nada Bullock is doing some better. And I know we've all been praying for her. We certainly pray that she'll continue to progress and that she will be well very soon. Okay, let's have a prayer for these folks. And also thinking about our study tonight as we continue with how we're going to develop a servant mentality. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for today, for all the good things that happened. We thank you for the blessings that you bring into our lives. And I pray, Lord, that, that we will express ourselves to one another with joy, just as an expression of the goodness that you brought to us, that in some way we can transfer what we've enjoyed into the life of another person. We pray for our country that is seemingly very divided right now. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring about peace and healing. And I pray that you will enable your people to be a catalyst for that peace. Help us as your children to express the love of Jesus. Lord, we have news of people that many are acquainted with that have succumbed to this virus and other folks that are suffering with the effects of it right now. We have a room full of people, many of which have either experienced it themselves or have had close loved ones. And we as a congregation have experienced the death of important members of our church. And we just pray, Lord, for healing. We pray that the vaccines are going to be effective. We pray for those who are in the hospital now that they'll receive treatment that will result in their recovery. And we pray for comfort for those who are grieving loss of family members. We pray for... O'Neill Parker, his family, and we pray that there will be comfort there. We also pray for Erlene Henderson's family and also in the loss of her sister. We just pray, Lord, that you'll bless those who remain. We're thankful that Nada is doing better. 
And Lord, it, of course, is our will that she'll recover. But in all things, we place ourselves in submission to you. Just when we come to you, we want to reveal to you what our heart is. And so, Lord, please restore her health to her. And for those who are members of our family that I didn't mention, I just pray, Lord, that you'll do the same for them. Our hearts are hurt, not just because they're illness, but because due to restrictions, we're not able to be with them. And it just makes that much more difficult. Thank you, Lord, for healing our hearts and for healing their bodies according to your will. We pray your blessings on us, Lord, tonight if we, as we consider kind of the other side of what we've been talking about, the, the conditions that hinder servanthood. Help us not to be guilty of those things, but as we examine them, help us to be cognizant of the fact that there are perils around us all the time that can get in the way of our serving you the way we ought to. And thank you, Lord, for being patient with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Four zero eight. Four zero eight. Pay special attention to what you're singing. It'll be somewhat of an encouragement for our lesson tonight. Take my life and lead me. Take my life and teach me. And here am I, send me. I hope you can say those things. Take my life, lead me, Lord.
one sentiment is expressed all through that song, and that is, make my life useful to thee. Make me useful. If we don't learn anything else about serving, I hope we'll learn that. That we will be useful in service to the Lord, and as we've seen on multiple occasions, being useful in service to one another. That whole scenario of our relationship with one another being used by the Lord to be productive and advancing the kingdom of God, I mean, it is, it is founded on the idea that we're going to work together. Now, everybody has a different role that they play, for sure, but let's, let's, let's set our minds that no matter what, we'll, we'll find our niche, we'll find the thing that we're capable of doing, and we'll do it to the very best of our ability. If we're all committed to that, I do the best that I can do, you do the best that you can do, that person sitting beside you, they're committed that way too, we will have a body that's functioning at 100% and we'll be able to do tremendous things, maybe things that we never imagined were possible. But we do need to be careful because there are some hindrances along the way. So I want us to think tonight about some of the conditions that exist that really do hinder us. I will tell you that some of those things are pretty obvious, and we're just going to break them down little by little and see if we can't nip some of these problems in the bud so that we'll not be guilty of them, so that we'll not be guilty of a desire for status, that is, we'll not try to set ourselves ahead of or above the other, and that when it comes to what are referred to as felt needs, that we will not put our needs ahead of the needs of other people. That in fact, we'll be committed to seeing to it that they are able to achieve the needs that exist in their lives. I'm hoping that we will understand that God values us and so that we have a proper sense of self-worth. And then finally, maybe this is the biggest thing, that we don't become self-centered in our work for the Lord, that we don't just always think of ourselves first to the exclusion of everybody else. Is it important that I give attention to myself and be sure that I'm certain? Of course. But don't so involve yourself in the pursuit of the things that most pertain to you, that you neglect or put aside the needs of your brothers and your sisters. So those are generally four things that we're going to try to talk about tonight that stand as hindrances to this servanthood. And I'm, I'm hoping that next week we will be able to review all the things that we've talked about over the last several months. And... Right now, I'm thinking this. Right now, I'm thinking, I'm just kind of going to bring out the general heading, and then you're going to tell me what it is you learned from that. <clears throat> Wait, don't pass out, okay? So if you need to, go back and look at those videos. Whatever you need to do, be ready. I'm, I'm hoping that it's so ingrained in you now, S, Ken, peace, no big deal at all. We got this. And then 
the next week, we'll, we'll do what I really like to do at the end of a series, and that is have a singing, okay? So we'll, we'll enjoy some time together, Lord willing. Okay, let's, let's talk about some of those things that get in the way. One is the desire for status. Well, you probably already recognize that's a huge hindrance to servanthood. Because status is closely akin to the idea of authority over others, being in a position of power, directing others. Status is what worldly people aspire to so that they can have some recognition to rise above the crowd. In Philippians 2, verse 3, though, the scripture says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Oh boy, (laughs) that doesn't sound like a status passage, does it? Right there, the text is saying, wait a minute, prefer the other. Don't look for an opportunity to gain status. Be a part of something. In fact, that that whole section was about how you humble yourself and you become a part of something great. Jesus being the primary example of that. I'm not thinking, really, as some people would, that we are in a time of status and efforts to be better than others simply because the draw of our society and the nature of our society. I I think this has been a problem always. It certainly was, according to this passage, to the brethren who are reading this letter addressed to the Philippians. If there were not a problem, he wouldn't have had to mention it. And as we've studied it before, I already saw that he said, now wait a second, I'm expecting some things to be in place already, So fulfill my joy, right? Take it the next step. And that next step was going to be a sense of oneness and humility of being bound together. In the first century, in the time of Jesus and the time of the church, as it was newly established, you still had problems with people seeking status. And it was a problem to their servanthood. And you don't have to look any farther than the apostles of Jesus Christ. John chapter 13, right? We know that text because it describes Jesus washing the feet of the disciples. But the reason that that lesson is there is because those disciples had already been bickering. And not just in that moment... For some time now, they've been bickering about this. And Jesus has used opportunities here and again to remind them that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humbled themselves would be exalted, as though that was going to kind of set the record straight. But it wasn't working with those guys, and they were still debating among themselves. You'll even remember that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Well, they had their mother going to Jesus, trying to get them a position to sit on the right hand or the left hand of Jesus. People wanted a position of status. So Jesus washes their feet. And 
What is so remarkable about Jesus is the humility with which he goes about it. Not one of those disciples rises up and says, Lord, forget that, let me help. You know, about the closest to that is Peter who says, you're going to wash my feet? You won't do it. And Jesus says, well, if I don't, you have no part with me. Well, then wash my whole body, right? Jesus not only washed those guys' feet, but the one we would be less likely to wash, you know, Judas's feet. If Jesus could humble himself that way, demonstrating servanthood as the master of the universe, then surely the example that he set ought to be something that we would pattern ourselves after. Many people give lip service to the idea of washing feet with the caveat, usually, that, wait a minute, he didn't mean that I really would wash feet, but that I should serve people. Well, let's be careful that we don't lose the totality of the meaning to truly humble ourselves and be willing to do anything in the service of of another. The church experienced some of that too, and you have to think, now, here, here Jesus has set these patterns and the church has been established, but yeah, you know, there on the day of Pentecost, it was the apostles who kind of led the whole situation. Peter and the others had stood up there preaching, and then later we find out that the apostles are still there in Jerusalem and kind of leading the church, and then eventually there are some elders there, and their leadership positions, and then we learn about deacons, and so you kind of get this hierarchy sense, and it isn't a far stretch when we start thinking in those ways. Again, we think of hierarchies and privilege and status. Oh, if I could only be in a position of authority, I would be finally respected. That wasn't the idea. In fact, those leaders at the very top of their list of requirements is the sense of service, of serving those that they were shepherding in the case of elders, leading by example, being a part of the flock. In fact, when Paul warned the Ephesian elders, he reminded them that these wolves were going to come in from among them. It's a totality experience, everybody having a role to play, in this case based on qualifications, but not status. It wasn't a popularity contest, but I don't think that Diotrephes got the memo on that, right? In the book of 3 John, verses 9 and 10, the thing that stood out about Diotrephes, not the fact that he is in the church and that he had obeyed the gospel, not that. Not that he was a great servant in the church as many were identified in various letters. But this singular attachment that makes his name an infamous one in the scriptures, that he loved the preeminence. You already know what that word indicates. He loved the idea that he was a big shot, maybe in a position of authority, or at least he had grasped some authority. People, in one way or another, were having to look up to him. And in fact, it had gotten so bad that he wouldn't even allow John and others to come in and associate with the brethren. It says that they he was using, quote, malicious words. You see, the
The whole idea of servanthood is about unity, about getting along. Not a divisiveness, not a maliciousness, and certainly not driven by the idea of status. In 1 Peter chapter 2, there is described servants, but in an interesting context. Servants, obey your masters. Now that service of masters was being couched through verse 20 in a series of potential circumstances. It might be that you're serving a good master. Great. Then as you serve him, you know, you're, you're going to enjoy the benefits of that service. But it might be that... He's not good, but he's evil. Maybe he's abusive to you. How do you respond in that relationship? In this case, if you were punished for doing good, then he says that that was something that was commendable to God. The whole idea is I'm not aspiring to override or to somehow usurp the authority of the one that I serve. I want to find my place. I I want to do my job, the job that's been laid upon me to the very best of my ability. I'm not going to seek an opportunity to rise up above or even in this case to assert my rights. Actually, in this case, the idea of blessing wasn't looking for that blessing to come from the master. It was looking for the blessing to come from the Lord the ultimate master. In fact, Jesus, later in this text, is described as the greatest example of one who suffered, suffering on our behalf. If I'm going to be a servant, then I need to be, need to be very careful that I am not in some way hindered in my servanthood by this aspiration for status. There's also possible that, okay, I've got to have needs met. You say, I've I've got to see to it that my, and I mentioned in the beginning, this idea of felt needs. I have to have my felt needs satisfied so that I can be a whole person. I need to be certain that as I'm serving others, I'm not aspiring to certain needs in my life that will either put me over another person or disregard another person or or stand in the way of their being able to meet their desired needs, their felt needs. You say, now wait a minute, Ken, what are you talking about? Because we all have needs, right? I have a need to eat food. I have a need to drink water. I need shelter and clothing. that's, That's not what felt needs are. Felt needs have to do with my interaction with other people, how it is that I set myself up so that I can function either in the society or in the group that I'm in. So felt needs is perceived need. I perceive that I have these needs in order that I might function properly. And I'll just tell you, there are nine felt needs that psychologists have identified Not that every one of us is looking for all nine of them all at once. Usually there are about three of these that we're concerned with at a time. 
But when we have these needs, it is possible for me to be so absorbed in my desire to get that that I forget, wait a minute, as a member of the church, I'm a part of other people's lives and they're trying to to have needs satisfied as well. I, I can't let my desire get in the way of somebody else. What we learn is that in Jesus Christ, my job is not to satisfy my own perceived needs. My job is to help you attain to or satisfy your needs. And then you are going to see to it that I'm able to satisfy my needs. We're working together to help one another. Well, Ken, what what are some of those needs that exist, those felt needs? One of those is the need for security. Now, in the world, boy, that's a, you know, that's a big subject. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of industry, uh, people coming up with all kinds of ideas, how to protect yourself, this and that. What I'm going to try to describe for you is not the worldly vision of how I achieve these kinds of needs, but actually how it is that you and I working together can realize the needs that exist in Jesus. Not in the world, but in Jesus. When it comes to security, well, we find our security in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 The Lord says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There is a resolve in all of us, I hope, that regardless of what happens, what we constantly fall back on is the knowledge that as God's children, he's always going to be present with us. I don't need a security firm for that. I have the Lord walking by my side. In Jesus, we can have a sense of security that can satisfy my need. Adventure is another one of those needs. Now, out there in the world, you, have, you can even go on vacations that are geared toward adventure. Oh, you'll have a nice place to stay, but every day they'll, they'll want to take you hiking or skiing or scuba diving or some kind of experience that is couched under the idea of adventure, raises up the adrenaline. But you know, in Jesus Christ, we also have a great deal of adventure. And I, I think about, okay, the Apostle Paul, was there ever a guy who had more adventure than that guy? Okay, but when he comes to the end of his life, it's just like, it's just like he's, he's putting, sometimes I get texts from you folks that have got four or five exclamation points after it, you know? And I'm like, yes, that just fired up. And I think when Paul writes this, it's like he's got the exclamation points going. Second Timothy chapter four, six and following, he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not for me only, but also for all those who have loved his appearing. He's like, you, you can get you some of this too. Just as I've been striving all along, man, I've come to the end and it has been amazing. And what I'm getting, you can get. You can have that same, well, it's a felt need. 
you can have that same sense of adventure. Freedom is another one of those felt needs. Everybody wants a sense of being free, of doing what it is that they want to do. I mean, our whole nation is founded on that idea of freedom. I, I ought to be able to be free to, to exercise myself as a human being. And there are laws that are set in order to guarantee that we have those freedoms. But never forget that ultimate freedom is found in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, But God, be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you've obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We go from condemnation in sin to exaltation and a home, expectation of a home in heaven, simply because now we've aspired for the things of God. We have absolute spiritual freedom in Jesus Christ. There's also the felt need of exchange. And when I say that, I'm probably not talking to everybody in here, but you know who you are. The person who has that felt need for exchange is the person who so much just wants to talk to somebody else and share with them what it is that they've learned. And then they're anxious to hear back from what they think about it. Or do they have something to add to it? It is, it is the person who just loves to, to dive into that conversation. I've heard it described this way, and, and maybe there's another way that you describe it, but when I talk about somebody who's got the gift of gab, <laughs> I'm not trying to insult them. I'm saying that is a person who just loves to... Loves to engage, or, or in this sense, to exchange ideas. Now, there's a beautiful description of that in Jesus Christ from Acts chapter 17. In that text, beautiful depiction of the gospel being preached in three primary cities. The first is in Thessalonica, then it goes to Berea, and then to Athens. And in every case, you, you have the Apostle Paul working with folks, but th the folks that are in these cities are very different from each other. You notice as you go through that text that the Apostle Paul changes the way he approaches people. He doesn't change the message. The pure gospel is being preached in every single place. In fact, it's preached to the Bereans in such a way that they're like, wow, this is like something we never heard. We're going to go home. We're going to check and make sure that what you're preaching is the truth. We're going to search the scriptures every day to see that that's true. I just love the attention that the Apostle Paul gives to every situation. It's not a cookie cutter presentation of the gospel. It is, well, it's about real exchange. I want to share with you the truth. I'm waiting to hear back from you what you think about it so that then I can express more fully the truth about Jesus with the hope that I'm going to convince you and save your soul. Exchange, uh, the, the gift of gab, is a powerful, powerful tool. There's the sense of power. Some people desire power out in the world. I don't have to tell you how destructive the... the attempt to gather up power can be the, the effort to climb 
what we talked about earlier, the ladder of status or responsibility, that can be a cutthroat exercise. But in the church, well, in the church, in Jesus Christ, we are all about power. Now, what's great about that is that it's very subtle because the greatest power that you have, aside from just simply preaching the gospel itself, is the life that you are living before people. You've heard this before. Nobody cares how much you know until what? Until they know how much you care. The power of your example in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, here's the Apostle Paul again. I mean, he's, he's so great as a servant of the Lord and as an example to us, but he really laid himself out there. And I wonder, I wonder if you've ever measured yourself against this, whether you could say it. Paul says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. L- look at me as an example of one who's following in the footsteps of Jesus. That's a challenge, Right? Boy, that talks about self-examination. Can I say those words? Am I confident in my relationship with the Lord such that I'm walking and I can tell another, you you do what I'm doing and you'll be okay? Or what Paul told Timothy. And I, I don't know if Timothy had been giving attention to these things, but Paul certainly was giving him a, a pattern for himself or we would even say in some ways a formula for success as being an example in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, to be an example to the believers in word, conduct, love, spirit, faith, purity. If we went through that list, we'd find, wait a minute, that covers just about everything that I'd want to be as one who said to the other, follow my example. When Paul, you'll remember from Romans chapter 12, talked about it, he said in verse 2, not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to prove or to be the example of what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the aspiration for power, power of example is absolutely something that we can have in Jesus Christ. For some people, it's the idea of expansion, now, in the world, expansion means I want to grow. You know, I want to, I want to gobble up the little guy so that I can become bigger. That, that's not expansion in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, the idea is the expansion of the kingdom of God. And that was Jesus' primary goal as he was ascending to the Father. To go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So be it. Jesus says, look, I'm leaving this in your hands, and you go out there and you make some disciples. You baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then you teach them. You, you teach them the gospel. They obey that gospel. Then you stay involved with them. Expand the kingdom. Teach them to teach others what I've taught you. That's exactly what they did, isn't it? There's a pattern laid out in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 that says that they were to begin in Jerusalem, then it would spread to Judea, Samaria, to the other, uh, uttermost parts of the world. But in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, you kind of see that enacted. 
where there's persecution that comes, but the brethren, when they are spread, they go everywhere preaching the word. They were all about. And that isn't just the leaders of the church. That's everybody who is being scattered. They were all in on this idea of expanding the kingdom. They went everywhere, every single one of them, preaching the word. Sometimes it's just the idea of acceptance. Now, out there in the world, you've got to own up to something, right? If you want people to accept you, you've got to be flawless. Or if there are mistakes that are in you, you've got to somehow pay the piper. You know, you, you, you have got to go through a long list of, of, of actions in order to gain acceptance, And our society and other societies around the world are very much fragmented. You may want to be a part of something, but maybe you're not qualified for it. And so you're excluded. In Jesus Christ, though, there is acceptance available for everybody. Now, speaking of the Apostle Paul again, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 12, Paul says, I thank Jesus Christ our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Those who are believing on him for everlasting life are having acceptance. Paul says, let me just put myself out there as an example of a person who could obey the gospel and actually be saved. He says, my life, it was a mess. I was a persecutor and an insolent man. I was the worst. And we can read the record of the life of the Apostle Paul, how it is that he persecuted Christians, was on the road to Damascus looking to gather up Christians and take them back for persecution. He was the guy that people dropped their coats at the feet of when they went to stone Stephen. And now Paul says, I've received the grace of God. And if God's grace can do This incredible thing with me, the chief of sinners, imagine what he could do for you. Acceptance in Jesus Christ. And then there's the felt need of community, of being a part of something bigger. And again, in the world, sometimes community is about people of like mind or or very much the same, right? Maybe it's a neighborhood, but you don't qualify to live in our neighborhood for this or that. Maybe you don't make enough money. Or, or maybe you, you can't be a part of our club because you aren't exactly high enough on the social level. You're not, you're not famous enough. In Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, whether male or female, that's community. That's being a part of of something. And I mean, we, we have talked ad nauseum about the part that each one of us play. No one greater or more important than the rest. 
but all of us doing our thing, being a part of something bigger, a sense of community. In Philippians chapter 2, therefore, there's any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Remember how we broke that down? There's the idea of us being together of union, but greater still was the fulfilling of his joy in being unified, one mind, one accord in Jesus Christ. That is all about community. And then the sense of excellence in Jesus Christ, of just aspiring to something, well, with Jesus in it, that's, that's perfect. You and I can taste of that as we become members of the church that Jesus died for, that he purchased with his own blood. <laughs> in the world, excellence, again, is kind of an arbitrary thing. It just depends on who you're talking to as to what the standard of that excellence is. But when you talk about something that was set apart by the blood of the Son of God, you're talking about something in the mind of God that's perfect. I understand we are just people. We are not perfect. But what God desires in the church is perfect. That's why we're working together toward our maturity and our completeness so that we can bring glory and honor to God in it. You see, the fact is, people aspire for their needs all the time. But every important need can be satisfied in Jesus Christ. Well, I got a lot to say, but our time's running out. <laughs> so I want to just, I want, I want to encourage you that as, as you are, are doing your very best to be that servant of the Lord, that whatever hindrances uh, can be expressed, the ones that, that I listed there in, in the beginning, or as we've kind of gone through and see, wait a minute, I, I have these needs too, but I, you know what? I, I've been going about that the wrong way. I've got to get things right. What we've got to do as children of God is put first things first. If we're going to be servants of Jesus Christ, we don't serve from the top. We serve from the low place. We're going to put others first. And in the process of that, we will be encouraging, building up our brethren. And then they, with that same commitment, they're going to be encouraging and building us up. And as I've said many times, we will be building one another up all the way to where? All the way to heaven. Let's pray together and then we'll be dismissed. Let's have the parents kind of go out first, give you a few minutes and or a few seconds. Let's give you 20 seconds. So run out of here. And then the rest of us will follow. Our Father, thank you for your patience with us. Lord, we're, we're doing our very best to learn more about what it takes to serve. And not just to serve you, Lord, but uh, in our extension of our love for you and our desire to please you, to encourage and build one another up to. Lord, we know what you think of servants and 
We want you thinking the best of us. So, Lord, help us to serve from the bottom up and help us to put other people first. Thank you for uh, loving us enough to even put us in this position. Help us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, the greatest servant of all. In Jesus' name, amen.